0: You'd please turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. We took a brief break last week, given the unique situation our church found itself in and looked at Nehemiah 8. This morning, we are continuing our series through the book of Mark, where Bob left off, and and I do plan uh, to finish the book of Mark. And uh, we find ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Uh, I apologize, your bulletin says that uh, we will be reading from Mark chapter 9, 38 through 42. Uh, I was wrestling with whether or not verse 42 belonged to the passage we are reading. I was back and forth and came to the conclusion it did, and then the bulletins were printed, and then I came to a different conclusion. (laughs) I came to the conclusion that most of your English translations actually have it right, and verse 41 is where the passage ends. Uh, So next week, we will begin in verse 42. So I apologize, your bulletin says uh, we will be reading through to verse 42, but we will actually, in uh, fact, be reading verse 38 through 41. So with that introduction out of the way, let us give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. John said to him, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you bow your head with me in word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we come before your holy word in full recognition that it is your word that is like a two-edged sword that cuts your people to the quick cuts us down deep into the very marrows of our soul. And so, O Father, I do pray that each and every one of us here this morning would give full attention to it and to its proclamation. And I pray, O Father, that you would be with me as I seek to proclaim your word and take that which is consistent with it and use it to penetrate the hearts of your saints and change us from one degree of glory to another. And do this for the sake of your Son, our Holy Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. What does a citizen in Christ's kingdom look like? What does one who belongs to Jesus Christ look like? What we have seen over the last several weeks in the book of Mark is that the disciples of Jesus are quite ignorant when it comes to the answer to that question. We saw back in chapter 8, verse 34 through 38, Jesus had to inform the crowd and his disciples what it meant to be a follower of Christ. It meant picking up your cross and following him. It entails suffering for the kingdom of God. And we know the reason why Jesus had to give that explanation was because it came on the heels of Peter rebuking Jesus when Jesus told Peter and the disciples that he must die in Jerusalem. Through Peter, we saw that the disciples understood citizens of God's kingdom to be ones who are mighty and who conquer through might and brawn, not through picking up their own cross. And we saw in the previous passage, a few weeks back in chapter 9, verse 33 through 37, that the disciples were discussing who was the greatest among the twelve. Again, the disciples displaying an ignorance of what a true follower of Christ looks like. They were filled with pride, having their eyes set on their achievement and their place within the inner circle within the twelve. And again, Jesus must must teach them a lesson. You will recall he takes a child and he holds that child in his arm, demonstrating to the disciples that it is not those who are prideful that the kingdom of God is for, but it is for those who are humble and have childlike trust in Christ as a child trusts in their parent. And here again, we see the disciples' ignorance in what a Christian ought to look like and we see it here represented by the disciple John. Verse 38 John says to Jesus teacher we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Once again we see the disciples now through John as the representative of all the 12 showing their pride. Because a man is not a follower of the inner circle. Because a man is not a follower of the twelve. And he is casting out demons. John and the other disciples rebuke him. Again, showing that these disciples are struggling with their pride. Essentially saying that this man didn't belong to Christ because he didn't belong to the camp of the disciples. And once again, Jesus is forced to give these ignorant disciples a lesson in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to do for the remainder of our time this morning is look at three characteristics that this passage shows us of what it means to be a true follower of Christ. First, I want us to see that followers of Christ are foolish, Christ, uh, foolish sinners. Second, I want us to see that followers of Christ are believers. And third, I want us to see us see that followers of Christ are simple. Foolish sinners, believers, and simple. So first, followers of Christ are foolish sinners. It's fascinating that here, John, and it's very interesting that here, John is the one that is depicted as the fool. He is the one playing the fool here in this passage. Back in chapter 8, it was Peter that played the fool by rebuking Jesus when Jesus told them that he must die in Jerusalem. And we will see in chapter 10, in the next chapter, James, along with John, will play the fool when they request from Jesus to sit at his right hand and at his left hand in glory. Peter, James, and John from chapter 8 to chapter 10, consistently being portrayed and highlighted by Mark as fools. Not Judas, the one who will betray Christ, not doubting Thomas, Peter, James, and John. The three that were considered the inner circle of the twelve, the ones that were closest to Jesus. Throughout the Gospel of John, John will call himself the beloved disciple. The closest friends of Jesus, Mark the Gospel writer, from chapter 8 through chapter 10, is consistently highlighting as fools, as sinners. The same Peter, James, and John that we saw earlier in chapter 9, who were invited to that mountain to witness the transfiguration of Christ, his glory. And they heard the voice of God the Father speaking through the glory cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That same Peter, James, and John depicted time and time again as fools. It's as though Mark is highlighting the foolish, sinful nature of Christ's followers by picking the three that you would least expect to be sinners and fools. Again, we need to be reminded. That according to strong tradition, it is Peter that is giving Mark his information for this gospel. It is Peter that is relaying the information to Mark for this gospel. And isn't it interesting how often Peter is depicted and highlighted as a fool, as a sinner? As we've already noted, chapter 8, he rebukes Christ's cross chapter 9, we saw him at the Mount of Transfiguration not knowing what to say, and he utters out this foolish suggestion that they make tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, completely missing the point of what the event was meant to point to. And of course, as we will see in chapter 14, uh, Peter will deny Jesus three times. Peter, time and time again, as he's relaying information to Mark, plays the fool plays the sinner Peter doesn't shy away from his foolishness Peter doesn't shy away from his sin it's almost as though he embraces it he owns it we see it also with Paul and many times in his epistles Paul not shying away from his foolishness not shying away from his sin He owns it when he says in 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Timothy 1 that he is the worst of sinners. That he is the chief of sinners. 1 Corinthians 15 we will be reading tonight in our evening sermon series. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say that he is the worst, the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church of Christ. Peter and Paul embracing and Owning their sin, embracing and owning their foolishness. And by embracing and owning their sin and their foolishness, they embrace the gospel. They embrace Christ, who came to live and to die for sinners. Matthew 9, what is it that Jesus says? Jesus says to his disciples, I have not. Come down for the righteous. I have come down for the sinner. Meaning, I have not come down for those that think they have it all together. Such people will never embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. Such people can never have Christ. And they will never be able to learn at his feet and grow in wisdom, grow from one degree of glory to another. We have some teachers here in this room. What is the ideal student for a teacher? It's not the intelligent know-it-all. The intelligent know-it-all is not going to learn a thing in the class, is he? Because he's going to know everything, or at least he's going to think he does. And everything that teacher says, he's going to roll his eyes at. And he'll never be molded and shaped by the teacher. The most ideal student for a teacher is the one who really recognizes himself as a fool who recognizes their ignorance when it comes to the subject at hand? It is that student who years later will look fondly back on the teacher, not only for helping to mold and shape their minds, but help mold and shape their lives and their very character. Christ has come for the sinner. And Peter and James, Peter and John and Paul embrace the reality that they are Foolish sinners. When we become followers of Christ, we enter into the classroom of Jesus as fools, as sinners, ready to have our preconceived notions of what we think is right to be challenged, ready to have our wayward ways and our sins exposed before God and his holiness so that then we can truly begin to learn at the feet of of Christ so that then we can move from sinner into holiness. So then we can move from fool into wisdom as we learn from the all wise and righteous and holy master and teacher Christ. True followers of Jesus Christ recognize that they are foolish sinners before a holy God. And it is foolish sinners that Christ has come to die for to teach and to fill with his wisdom and change from one degree of glory to another. True followers of Christ own and embrace their sin and their foolishness. Secondly, followers of Christ are believers. Followers of Christ are believers. Jesus responds to John in verse 39 and he says, but Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. It's interesting here that Jesus is recognizing in effect the same thing that John himself recognizes in verse 38. And that is that this man has done a mighty work in the name of Christ. Notice what John says in his accusation of the man. He confirms that demons have been cast out. There once were demons. And now there are not. You see the foolishness, the perversity of sin and pride in that statement? It's akin to the scribes saying that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath because he heals them. Here is John so filled with pride that even in the statement and the accusation, he confesses and confirms that demons have been cast out. There is perversity in pride. There is stupidity in sin. These demons aren't being cast out by some magical spell, by the power of the individual himself. This isn't some grand illusion that is taking place before their eyes. They are being cast out by the power of Christ. To invoke the name of someone when you do something is to attribute the act and the power to that name that you have invoked. So when he does this mighty work and casts out demons in the name of Christ, he is attributing the power to Christ. He is opposing evil in the name of Christ. Now we have to see that there is a particular sting here for these disciples here. If you recall earlier in chapter 9 these same disciples tried to cast out an unclean spirit but they were unable to. And here you have this no name. This one that is not a follower of theirs able to cast out demons. It must have really been a big hit on the pride of these disciples. And do you recall what the conclusion of Jesus was earlier in chapter 9 when the disciples were unable to cast out the demon? Oh, faithless generation, how long must I endure with you? Here is a no-name. Here is one who is not a follower of the 12, who seems to have more faith than the 12 themselves his ability to cast out demons. Now we know that in other places in Scripture, there are those who claim to do mighty works in the name of Christ, but we get a very different conclusion from Jesus. Jesus saying that they, in fact, do not belong to him. Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here, as we can see in Matthew 7, all the confidence of these lawless people seems to lie in their mighty works. Did we not prophesy? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Notice they don't say, didn't we serve you faithfully? Weren't we persecuted for the sake of Christ for you? No, they point to all these demonstrative, these demonstrative works that they supposedly done in the name of Christ, and Jesus' name is sort of seen as an afterthought, a byproduct of the works themselves. These people in Matthew 7 are like Simon the Magician in Acts 8. Simon the Magician, as he sees Peter lay his hands on the Samaritans, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the Samaritans, and they demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not exactly sure how they demonstrated it. Most believe they started speaking in tongues. But Simon the Magician, upon seeing it, runs to Peter and offers him money and says, give me this power also. So that anyone I lay my hands on will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter harshly rebukes Simon there in Acts 8. And he says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Simon the magician Much like those people of Matthew 7 are lawless individuals who when seeing the power of the kingdom at work don't see the power of Christ over evil and sin, but they see opportunity to enhance their own power and influence in the world. And Jesus is just used as a byproduct. If he can be used to gain power and influence, then sure, they'll grab Jesus. He's no different than Muhammad. If Muhammad could gain them power, then they would do so. And the mighty works that they do actually have the opposite effect of opposing evil and opposing the kingdom of darkness. They actually enhance it, and they further its cause. And it is not, in fact, a work in the name of Christ by the power of Christ. It is whatever it might be, the work of evil that enhances and furthers evil, and Christ's name is in no way attached to it. But that is not the case with this man here. Jesus is not being used as a byproduct in order to gain notoriety. His name is being invoked because this man believes that the power over darkness and evil rests in Christ and in Christ alone. His mission is the same mission as Christ and his, dis- his disciples. Oppose evil in the name of the one who has the power to destroy it. So Jesus can say in verse 40, For the one who is not against us is for us. There is, I believe, here in Jesus' words, Jesus preparing these Jewish disciples for the mission that Christ will send them out on when Christ resurrects and ascends into heaven. When Christ resurrects and ascends into heaven, he sends these Jewish disciples to go be missionaries, proclaimers of the gospel to the gentiles whose nickname among the jewish people was dirty dogs here jesus is training his disciples to embrace those who fight for the cause of christ those who grab hold of christ by faith whether they be of the 12 whether they be jewish or gentile male or female slave or free all those who grab hold of Christ by faith are to be seen as fellow comrades and soldiers for Christ and soldiers against the evil. The great preacher of the first great awakening in the eighteenth century, George Whitfield, wrote a letter to another famous preacher, a name you probably all know, John Wesley. George Whitfield was a staunch Calvinist who held to Reformed theology, and Wesley was really in many ways a staunch Arminian and rejected many of the principles of the Reformation. And in this letter that Whitfield writes to Wesley, he is essentially pleading for Wesley to embrace the Reformed faith. He is pleading with Wesley to come back to the Reformed tradition that he had abandoned. As you read the letter, and you can read the letter, just Google Whitfield's letter to Wesley, uh, and you can get it on Google, I'm sure. As you read this letter, you can almost see the tears of Whitfield as he is writing this letter. He is anguished. He is burdened by the fact that his dear friend has left the Reformed faith. But despite Whitfield's pleas, Wesley never was convinced. And he never ended up embracing Reformation theology. And in many ways, it crushed Whitfield. And once after a particular sermon, Whitfield uh, gave, a follower of Whitfield's came up to him and he said, Mr. Whitfield, we won't see Mr. Wesley in heaven, will we? To which Whitfield replied, yes, you are right. We won't see him in heaven. He will be so close to the throne of God. And we will be so far away that we won't be able to see him. Despite Whitfield's strong disagreements over doctrine with Wesley, what he saw in John Wesley was a man who loved and believed in Jesus Christ and who committed his life to fighting for his cause. I think really what Whitfield represents is something that is so often lost today. Today in the church, you really get one of two extremes. One extreme is doctrine really doesn't matter. Your theological stance doesn't matter. You should just throw doctrine out because all it does is create divisiveness and division within the church. All that matters is that we love Jesus. I'm not quite sure how you know how to love Jesus without doctrine, but that is a very popular notion in the church today. But the other extreme, is that my doctrine is so pure, my doctrine is so spot on that if anyone doesn't belong to me and to my camp, they must not be a Christian. But what we see with Whitfield is a biblical balance. Whitfield has a strong and passionate belief in the importance of doctrine but yet at the same time, a love for all those who profess Christ and seek to live for his glory. Ian Murray, writing on Whitfield's stance toward Wesley, says this, error must be opposed even when held by fellow members of Christ. But if that opposition cannot coexist with a true love for all the saints and a longing for their spiritual prosperity then it does not glorify God, nor promote the edification of the church. What Whitfield saw in Wesley, despite his theological misgivings, was a man that loved and believed in Christ. So that at the end of the day, Wesley was not one who was against Whitfield. He was one that was for him, because he was for Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are in a church, we are in a denomination that takes doctrine very, very seriously, as we should. Scripture commands it. We are to take doctrine seriously. But might we never, ever be so puffed up and arrogant as to think that us and our camp are the ultimate determiner of who is in and who is out. Yes, take doctrine seriously. But we should be able, as we are debating, as we are discussing, in love with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, areas of disagreement, we should be able to have the wisdom to discern those who are the true followers of Christ as they practice the fruit of the Spirit. Revelation 5 tells us there will be believers from every tribe, nation, and tongue bowing down and worshiping Christ who were believers. Something tells me they're not all going to have the label Reformed and Calvinist. And so that should help us, as we do, rigorously defend our doctrines at the same time extending our love for our fellow comrades and soldiers in the faith who seek to oppose evil and fight for Christ. Lastly and thirdly, followers of Christ are to be simple. Followers of Christ are to be simple verse 41 Jesus says for truly I say to you whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward notice that after speaking about one who casts out demons Jesus now speaks of one who does the seemingly insignificant task of giving water and he seems to put the two on par with each other casting out demons and fetching water. It fits so well with the scene that we have here. Remember, as Jesus is talking here, he still has this child in his embrace. He still has this little child as a visual reminder to the disciples that one who belongs to Christ is not a proud man, but a humble one with a childlike trust in Christ. And with childlike trust comes childlike good works. Go get me a cup of water. Those that belong to Christ are simple and there is no act too humble, too menial, too insignificant. But notice what this simple task is done for. It is not done in a vacuum. It's not walking down the street, putting some coins in a homeless man's cup, and saying, God will reward me. Notice what Jesus says Whoever gives you a cup to drink because you belong to Christ. What Jesus has in sight is simple, good works done for the people of God, for the church of Jesus Christ breaking down chairs setting up tables for publishing meal on day, doing meals asking people how they're doing how I can pray for you calling your brothers and sisters in Christ and seeing how they're doing there is no task too insignificant for a saint of Christ's church to partake in Jesus sees the grand sees the one activities that make us say, wow! But at the same time, he speaks in the same breath of those activities that are so menial and seemingly insignificant as fetching water. He places them side by side. Christ in his kingdom is pleased to use the grand, the casting out of demons and the fetching of water for the purpose of advancing his kingdom. And building up his church that the gates of hell will never prevail. Against. And he sees them, brothers and sisters, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Do not be paralyzed by the fact that you're not doing grand, wonderful things for the king. Christ looks at the little things and he rewards them. And he says, well done. Let's pray, dear Father. We thank you for Christ, who is a master that is gentle and sweet. That is not overbearing, but that looks at the little, tiny works that your saints do. Father, I pray if there are any, be anyone here this morning that seems like they are in the shadows that feels like they have nothing to contribute to your church. I pray that they would see that childlike faith, with childlike faith comes childlike good works. And you look on them and you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Might we be a body, yes, that commits ourselves to sending out missionaries? Might we be a body, yes, that commits ourselves to evangelizing and and seeing those demonstrative works and those demonstrations of the power of your spirit, but might we also be a body that commits ourselves to the day-to-day tasks, the menial tasks of serving your church, of serving your people, of serving Christ our Lord and our Savior. We pray that you would help us to do this, enable us by your spirit, Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.